Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When I was in high school, I thought that boys were just bad. I was like, boys suck, they're mean. And I think in a lot of ways that actually delayed my transition because I didn't want to accept my own boyhood because I aligned boy and manhood with, with toxic behaviors. Then I stepped onto a men's team, right? I walked into a men's locker room filled with only other cis men at the time. But I watched them interact and I realized that as they did, they were vying for each other's attention. That toxic masculinity performs for nobody but other men. I think the way toxic masculinity works is that it all functions because men want to belong. And they're told that the way that they belong is to engage in these toxic behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the most terrifying moment when I realized I had a desire to engage in the behaviors because I'd spent so long thinking all these things were horrible and why would anybody engage? But then I sat in this room wanting to belong. Hello, friends. I'm Justin Baldoni. And this is Jamie Heath from the Man Enough Podcast. And as you might know, we're releasing new episodes of a brand new series we are producing with our friends at Style Like You. It's their YouTube channel. Every Thursday through the end of the year. And this series is called What's Underneath Masculinity. And it's presented by our sponsor, BetterHelp. Now, today, we're going to be talking to a friend of the Man Enough Podcast, Skylar Baylor. Skylar is a professional swimmer and the first transgender male athlete to compete in any sport on an NCAA Division I men's team. Skylar is an active writer. In fact, he's got a brand new book that just came out called He, She, They. He's a public speaker and he's an LGBTQ plus advocate. Skylar walks us through his own relationship with his gender identity, the way he navigated the world around him trying to fit in all the way to his transition and how liberating it has been for him. He transitioned while he was on the Harvard female swim team to Harvard's male swim team. This is something that we've all been talking about. It's in the news, it's everywhere. And it's conflicting for many people. Skylar is brave enough to come on a show and talk about it and uh, hopefully enlighten us no matter where you stand on it. If you wanna see Skylar tell his story in the shorter version, you can check out the Style Like You YouTube channel after you listen to the full version here, of course. And as always, we'd love to know what you think because at the end of the day, we're making these for you. So you can find us on social at We Are Man Enough. Send us a message. Let us know what you think. And in the meantime, enjoy this beautiful episode with Skylar Baylor. So I just want to begin by saying we're very grateful to have this mutual, incredible experience together. So thank you so much. We're going to be asking the questions and you're just going to be talking to us. You can just relax into it. It's our intention for you to express yourself fully and to tell your story fully. And then every once in a while, we'll ask you to take something off and you can just put it on the ground. Cool. Can you just start by um, telling us how you feel right now? I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. I was really excited when you all reached out because I think it's really powerful to both undress metaphorically and, and physically. So I'm a swimmer and so I've existed in close to nakedness for a lot of my life. And I've done a lot of work to feel comfortable in my body as somebody who's healed from an eating disorder, as well as a trans person existing in a, in a swimsuit where a lot of my identities feel very obvious on my naked body. And so I feel very comfortable 
Okay, so can you please take off your backpack? So, so can you yeah, talk ahead. about what your style says about you? I would say that I'm very utilitarian. I really don't like getting rid of things. Uh, part of that was how I was raised. If we, if something you know didn't didn't break or you know wasn't not working, then you kept it. I would call myself like a memory hoarder. So there's many things that I keep that um, maybe I don't need or I don't use, but feel really important to me. The hat being one of them is my, so these are called scrumpa hats. My mom um, can't sit still and so she knits uh, a lot. <laughs> she began to make these hats. And I think throughout like college and especially with my swim career, clothing was also a symbol of, of sort of where I felt I belonged. For example, this was, you know, from, from college, my swim team. Um, and I used to wear a lot of swim based t-shirts that I got at certain swim meets or at nationals or what have you, because that was, it was, it was actually about pride of again, where, where I felt I belonged and where I had earned a place um, due to my athletic performance. I would say the biggest th thing that was relevant to me in terms of, of style was, was actually what, what gender the style also told. My mom also is, is I think, similar. She's also very utilitarian. So the reason this is relevant is she didn't force me to wear really girly clothing. She let me wear what I, what I wanted and I selected a lot of boys' clothes. But I don't think I cared what type of boy attire I wore. It wasn't like I want to be this type of fashionable or that. It was more, I don't want to be in this category of sort of girl clothes. I want to be in this category that feels more aligned with who I am. How was that received peer-wise and everything when you were younger? I was always othered in many ways. I think it's just always been a little different from other people. But it was, you know, a combination of clothing, about how I acted, my haircuts, the way I presented myself in spaces. I both isolated myself and was isolated, in, I think, intentionally from my peers because I didn't match a box. You know, I wasn't the girl that everybody thought I was supposed to be, and I didn't act like the other girls, I didn't dress like the other girls, but I was known to be a girl. So it was it was this very gender non-conforming life that I lived, so the girls would actively be like, well, you're not a real girl, so you can't, you know, play with us. And the boys would know that I wasn't a real boy either, and so they wouldn't include me. So I think, you know, my middle school, I played boys baseball, boys lacrosse, boys soccer when I was a kid as well, and was the only girl on those teams. So I was frequently bullied and harassed for being different. Can you explain a little bit more, like, how that happened that you were, like, allowed to be on those teams at that age? Like, Some of it was honestly by accident because the boys lacrosse team, my mom signed us up for lacrosse camp and signed me and my brother up at the same time. And when we showed up, it was boys lacrosse, and that was that. I, they let me play. It was just it was just a summer camp, so I was able to play. They were lenient because it didn't matter. You know, it was like, what, where did you want to go because your friends were there? And um, the, the, the league seemed to just not care, and I think that was perhaps like a progressive standpoint. They were allowing a girl on a boy's team and just sort of being inclusive. But I think it was also just, there wasn't the same heightened freak out about people and sports in the same way then. And then baseball was seventh grade with my school team. And that was a horrible experience. The older boys, so the boys that were in the grade above me were very mean to me. And I just like, it wasn't, it wasn't good for me. I think they would, they would just all make fun of me a lot and snicker about me. And I think the coaches didn't really know what to do. And I was the only quote, girl at the time there. And at the time I was also starting to get very good at swimming. I was doing lots of really intense swimming outside of school. And so we worked out a deal with the school where I actually didn't have to do a sport. And where were you in terms of your own 
awareness around your gender? I was very adamant that I was a tomboy. The word that I had was tomboy. Everybody called me a tomboy. Everybody said Skylar's a tomboy. And so I said, I'm a tomboy. I don't know if any of you all have done this, but in like fourth, fifth grade, they do like an all about me paragraph, you know, in English class, you have to do like, this is all about me. And um, you wrote like a bio about yourself as the first assignment. And every year I would write, Hi, I'm Skylar, blah, 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 about my age, whatever, I'm 10 years old, and I'm a tomboy. And it was always what I included because it was very important to me that people understood I wasn't a girl the way that they saw girls. I was aware that I, my gender was important in my life and that it was different from, my experience with my gender was different from how other people experienced their gender, uh, but I didn't have the word transgender. And so I think I actually held a lot of shame because I thought, there was something wrong that I wanted to be a boy, that I was jealous of my brother, that all of my tendencies felt aligned with the other boys, but I was a girl, what did that mean? So it was very confusing, I think, for me as a kid. And the first time I cut my hair, my mom took me to, to get my hair cut short. I had long flowing hair and um, she was like, do you wanna get a short haircut? I was like, sure, yes, of course, I'd love that. Uh, and so I got a short haircut and then everybody immediately started gendering me as male, right? As soon as I got the haircut, that was a, a switch was flipped because all my clothes were male and then my haircut was was male haircuts can't be male but you know what I mean yeah and so I looked just like any other little boy and I acted just like any other little boy and I think there was this excitement of that but then I also felt like a fraud because I didn't know that I was actually able to say I am a boy I thought there was something wrong with this sort of discrepancy and when my peers and my teachers and my parents saw me being gendered quote, incorrectly at the time. So people were using she, her pronouns for me at the time when people used he, him pronouns for me or, or thought that I was my parents' son, everybody would get mad. Everybody was very upset. They'd be like, no, no, this is my daughter, right? They get really intense about it. My mom would get really intense about it. And so I very quickly learned that there was something wrong with people mm -hmm. thinking I was a boy. Nobody intended for that, right? right. I, I have a lot of empathy for, I don't, yeah. no anger that my mom corrected people in the ways that she should. That she thought she was like protecting my girlhood, you know, and saying girls can have short hair, girls can wear boys' clothes, and totally <laughs> agree with those things. Right. But it sent me the message that something was wrong with, with being a boy, essentially, or wanting to be a boy. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back to What's Underneath Masculinity. So now you can take off your hat. Can you talk a little bit about the assumptions that people make about you based on how you present or how you look? Yeah. Well, I think it depends on the eye of the beholder, but I think it's pretty safe to say most people don't know that I'm transgender when they look at me, or rather they don't assume that I'm transgender, they don't assume that I'm queer. I, I'm always curious what people assume about my race. I think some people assume that I'm Asian. I think some people know that I'm mixed. Other mixed people usually know that I'm mixed. I'm a very focused person and sometimes that can come across as like hard or harsh or, or sort of unapproachable. But then I also know to some people, especially like at airports, which is a benefit for me, people I think see me as like a cute, like, 
man who, child, boy, I don't know, because I'm almost always treated very nicely by flight attendants, especially who are women. And there's like, there's like a softness that people give me. And my assumption is that they're assuming that I'm young, that I'm maybe naive, maybe that I'm alone. I don't know. There's, I feel like there's like a softness that's almost like caretaking. There's also a lot that has to do with like how boys are treated versus how girls are treated there, right? Who is coddled and who isn't. And I think I can notice the difference from when I was treated as a woman in the world. Can you can elaborate you? on that? Sure. I think these are generalizations, but boys are often raised in a way that shifts to their needs, right? And, and a lot of boys are, are coddled. They're sort of like the whole mama's boy trope, if you will. Um, and boys are often permitted to act as they are. Boys will be boys. And oh, that's just how boys are, right? Whereas a lot of girls are held to different standards. That discrepancy is rooted in misogyny, is rooted in patriarchy, in that girls have to show up in a certain way to be certain kinds of people for others, whereas boys are just boys. I didn't have the boys will be just boys as in my childhood. So I, I was raised um, and treated as as a, as a girl and by my parents. And even by even though people often mistook me for a boy, I was mostly socialized as a girl. And so I remember what that's like. And I remember being adultified. I remember being exoticized. I remember being fetishized, uh, especially because I was mixed race. There was a lot of being told, oh, mixed race girls are the prettiest or the sexiest or the most attractive. I'm like five, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. That was also told me to me when I was eight, nine, 10. And it was very different how I was treated versus how my brother was treated. And I always said I was so beautiful and I was so this and that and the other compliments about my appearance that didn't feel like compliments. And my brother, he didn't receive the same treatment. Fast forward to now, I think the fact that I don't look harsh most of the time, I, I think I have soft features. I also am Asian and I think there's a, there's a meekness associated with Asian men. I'm not tall, I don't look threatening, I'm not big. And so all of these put me in this category of sort of meek and young. And it's more about me being something that's cute and needs to be cared for and coddled as opposed to something that's adultified, fetishized and exoticized, right? There's also lots though that I feel can be taken from me in those moments because I don't get to be all of myself as, as a man, as somebody who's actually 27 and not 15, as somebody who can be assertive, who does have thoughts and who isn't, you know, this, this meek combination of stereotypes that people assume of Asian men and, and trans men as well. There's a lot of layers to this, so. I don't That's know. If I'm, no, it's we really <laughs> fascinating. We, we we love layers. So you're saying um, that there's also the assumption that trans men are also like meeker or like softer. Well, I think meekness is associated with femininity, right? When we think about like the words meek, we think about the word weak. We associate that with men who also are often accused of being too feminine, right? Or not man enough. And Asian men are consistently accused of not being man enough, right? And being too soft or too meek. Like I said, the word meek, I think, comes up for me a lot. And trans men are also, because we are so closely associated with womanhood, we're also considered not man enough or too feminine. Um, I think even, especially as an athlete, you know, people assume that I couldn't compete with cisgender men, right? Men who are not trans. And there's a weakness that's assumed of me in that space as well. We've got two pretty strong stereotypes of lesser masculinity, right? Or even just not masculinity that are assigned to me that I think can offer me sort of a, a, a non-threatening 
air about me that can cause certain people, I think especially women, to treat me with kindness and softness and as a baby, right, as a, as a child, and then can also have men treat me with a lot of harshness because they see me as not man enough, and that's a great way to push me down and pull themselves up, right? And how does it make you feel when people assume you to not be trans or queer? Is that something that, like, has different layers to it? Yeah, absolutely. For a long time, when I was first transitioning, my goal was to be a man, right? I wanted to be a man. I wanted to look like the man I felt that I, I, I was. And I wanted to look in the mirror and see that man. I wanted people to see that man. And one of the things I've found over the years is that actually that initial declaration was that I, I think I wanted to be a cis man. I wanted people to see me not as trans. I wanted people to see me in this bucket of normal man. That desire has not, has not stayed put in the same way. It's morphed. I want to be seen as myself and myself isn't cisgender. Myself is transgender. And I think that when people don't see my transness or my queerness, there's a lot of my history that's quickly erased. And that feels painful. That feels difficult. It feels grief stricken and it's somehow exactly what I had been searching for at the same time and there's a duality there that just is. It could seem like they're conflicting and they are but they don't have to be. They can just sort of both be present that I wanted people to see my manhood and they do now and the seeing of my manhood has erased my transness. I don't think I've felt in conflict with it for, for many years, but I do think there's been times in my life that have felt really painful. I think that it's also enshrouded with and birthed of privilege because I have the privilege to be able to access gender-affirming care. I have the privilege of supportive family and parents and, and friends, and I have had access to top surgery and to testosterone. Like, all these things have allowed me to also grow into myself in a way that now makes my transness not as obvious to other people. And so those are privileges and, and, and also award me safety, right? I think, am I also grateful that my transness isn't visible? Yeah, because I get to walk down the street and not have everybody stare at me because I'm trans, right? They might stare at me for another reason because that happens and I'm always wondering why, but, but you know, they, they're not staring at me because I'm trans for the most part. And that's a huge privilege and a huge erasure. Do you find that you want to be seen like for exactly who you are. And I, I get that sometimes, maybe yes, sometimes no, depending on safety and all of that. But then where's the part that wants to be seen? And like, how does that? Well, I mean, practically, because my trans and queer identities are not often seen, I am perceived as a cisgender man. And what happens in that moment is I have male privilege. And when I have male privilege, I also have the power of the patriarchy that I can wield in a moment. And the first time I remember noticing this, I was walking home at night. I was in college my first year. And I was walking home, and there was somebody in front of me walking as well. And this person kept on looking back at me. And so I kept looking back too. I was like, who's behind me? What are we, what's somebody following us? What's going on? And then I realized that this person who was likely a woman was looking at me consistently because it looked like I was following her. And in that moment, I had this panic where I was like, oh my God, I, I'm being that man that I would never want to be. And then I was angry because I was like, how, how dare somebody see me as this person who could perpetuate the patriarchy? I walked the world in a woman's shoes for 18 years and now somebody's afraid of me? How, how dare they be afraid of me? They don't know me like that. And then I felt sad because it doesn't matter what she knows about me. It doesn't matter who I've been. It matters that this is the, the power of the patriarchy that I now have the privilege and the responsibility of holding. 
I now never walk behind a woman at night. I will either slow down or I'll cross the street. I try very hard to be mindful of talking about women's issues. I really had to reckon with what that meant, especially having walked the world as what people perceived as a woman for, for so long. And for many years of my life, the first 18 plus years of my life, I was the victim of misogyny. Now I'm expected to be an accomplice in it. Okay, so can you take off your jacket? Yes. Can you talk about the biggest insecurity that you are working on overcoming or have overcome recently? I think for the longest time in my childhood, I was afraid that I was some sort of imposter. I wasn't who I said I was um, in, in many, many different iterations. I think some of that was gender. I just never, I didn't feel like I was a girl. And so saying that I was a girl was really hard, but then I didn't feel like I was allowed to say I'm a boy. And so saying I'm a boy was also hard. So there was, and I think gender is such a a, a central identity for, for so many. It's the, one of the first things we recognize about people that not being able to clearly define or align myself with gender felt deeply dysregulating. And always I felt not quite like it myself. And especially somebody who's played sports for a long time, being in locker rooms, I think that only accentuated that feeling of, of I'm an imposter. And I think being in the girls' locker room was really hard because I didn't feel that I belonged there and people would reinforce that, right? I looked like a boy to a lot of people. And so they'd yell at me, they'd harass me, they'd ask me to leave. And so it was, I, but I didn't have anywhere else to go. I didn't know that I could, like I didn't know I could ask you know, to the, the boys' bathroom, nor do I think people would have let me if I'd asked, you know? And so I used the girl's bathroom and I didn't belong there. But then when I was there and people were like, you're a boy, I had to say, no, I'm a girl. And I had to defend this identity that didn't feel like mine either. And so I think that felt like a constant mismatch and, and it made me feel like, like I said, an imposter and a fraud. There were also times where I didn't have to disclose that I, that I, you know, quote, was a girl. Um, and so sometimes I would go to camp and I would just let people believe whatever they did about my gender. And that usually meant that they thought that I was a boy and I would sort of revel in that for a bit of time. But then that felt like a lie too. In many ways that has resolved now, but it's been replaced with this mirage of people thinking I'm a cisgender man. But the piece that I've actually found with regards to that is knowing that my authenticity is for me. I think people think authenticity means I have to present my authenticity, mm -hmm. but I have come to a, a sort of more recent conclusion. My authenticity actually isn't for other people. It's for me to know myself and that's it. And if I choose to share my authenticity, then I'm vulnerable. And so I, I really sort of leaned into that knowing so that I don't have to feel that if somebody doesn't see me exactly the way I see myself, that doesn't mean that I'm an imposter. That doesn't mean that I am a fraud. It doesn't really mean anything except for they've got assumptions about me that don't match my truth. And that's okay. That happens all the time. Can you give an example of, of when you're with men and they're being misogynistic and um, and how you dealt with it on, and what they're saying. And, sure. Yeah. Um, a recent example I can think of, I was at a exercise class and the teacher was a man who was consistently using the B word. I don't even really like to say it, B-I-T-C-H. It's not like it. some people don't consider it a curse word, some people do. For me, it's a word that I know many women have been called in a very aggressive and misogynistic manner. I think that a lot of men use it in a very misogynistic manner. And so I just, I, I refrain from using that word. And this person was talking about like, everything was like, let's kill this B word. Let's do this. Let's like, let's attack. The, and it wasn't about 
women. It was wow. about the cl- class. Right, <laughs> I saw right. Face, like, yeah. About the class, but I still felt it was unnecessary to, to use this language. It's also a professional setting. I didn't know why he was, anyways, long story short, he was using this word. And I really felt uncomfortable and I, most of the class was women. And I can't imagine that all of them felt comfortable with this word consistently being thrown around. So afterwards I talked to him and I said, I didn't say anything about my identity. I just said, hey, you know, um, I've read that uh, it's, it's, not so great to use the B word um, because it draws a lot of history of misogyny, especially as a man. And I just wanted to let you know that in case you didn't know that. He was sort of really defensive. He was like, what do you mean? That's like, I don't understand. And I, my friends say it's fine. And I was like, that's okay. Like, I just think about it as harm mitigation. Like, even if your friends say it's fine, there's some people that don't think it's fine. Why would you do the thing? If some people hurt some people and doesn't hurt other people, why would you just I want to not do it, right? And I could just, I could say, well, I've had this experience and I've been called that word and I know what it's like to feel small and to feel lesser than and to be made to feel like womanhood is bad, right? And, and inferior to manhood. Um, and I could explain that to, to these men, but it, I don't I don't think that shifts people as much in those moments as being called to the plate by somebody they see as an equal. And it's, mm. it's really sad, actually, that that's the case. But it's, I think, where... Um, men need to call other men in because it seems in my experience that men are more willing to listen to other men or people that they think are men um, and they think that they can level set with than they are willing to listen to others. A lot of that is, I think, the way toxic masculinity works is that it all functions because men want to belong and they're told that the way that they belong is to engage in these toxic behaviors. Mm. And so if you tell boys from a young age don't cry because it will make you not, you know, desirable, will make you not belong. Um, don't act like a girl, right? Because that will make you not belong and not be desirable and not be man enough. All of those things create a very closed environment for young boys that requires them to shut off pieces of their humanity in order to belong. And I think that that's the part that I really stumbled upon in college because in my childhood, I was not one of the boys. I was one of the girls and the weird ones who was treated even worse, I think in many ways, by boys. And when I was in high school, I thought that boys were just bad. I was like, boys suck, they're mean, they want to prove their manhood is better than, than you know, my whateverhood, and um, they, you know, use their power, they're entitled, they're gross, they're whatever, right? I had all these beliefs about boys, and I think in a lot of ways that actually delayed my transition because I didn't want to accept my own boyhood because I aligned boy and manhood with, with toxic behaviors. Then I stepped onto a men's team, right? I walked into a men's locker room filled with only other cis men at the time, but I watched them interact and I realized that as they did, they were vying for each other's attention. The toxic masculinity performs for nobody but other men. It's not about actually for for women, it's not about for, for societal gain even, it's literally for other men to see them as belonging, right? It's all about finding mutual respect, which really means just wanting to be loved. And so there's this really like painful and and vulnerable piece that, that it undergirds toxic masculinity, which is this very human desire to belong. And the problem is the desire is there, but the way people get there is through this toxicity. I was coming from so much difference, right? Such a different history of gender. It was so obvious to me. I'm in the locker room and I'd see somebody tell a joke and they're immediately scanning the room to see who else is going to respond and to give them that, that validation that they belong there, right? And that they can be loved there. 
those dynamics were so striking to me mm -hmm. because I hadn't interacted with them in the same way before and I definitely hadn't been expected to participate in them either. Mm -hmm. I then felt like I should engage in these behaviors. And I think that was the most terrifying uh, moment when I realized I had a desire to engage in the behaviors because I'd spent so long thinking all these things were horrible. Why would anybody engage in these toxic ma masculine behaviors or just toxic behaviors in general? But then I sat in this room wanting to belong. And so I had some reconciling to do of, do I show up and engage in these behaviors so that I can belong? Or do I stand by many of my values and say, no, I'm not going to do that, right? And risk belonging in the process. Can you take off the pins first? You talked about where you were at with sports teams in middle school, but like what happened in high school and kind of like when did transitioning come in and then getting mm -hmm. to the point of being mm -hmm. in that swim team, yeah. All of middle school, I had mostly presented myself as a boy in, in that people, like I wore boy's clothing, I had short hair, a lot of people thought that I was a boy. I still consistently said, I'm a girl, and I and I would correct people if they misgendered or called me the he, him pronouns. Um, I had teachers that would really struggle with that, and they had a lot of trouble calling me the, the pronouns that I was supposed to be called, she, her pronouns. I had a teacher who argued with me, teachers that it was so confusing because some teachers thought that I was a trans girl when I said that I was I was a girl. I'd be like, no, I'm actually a girl. They'd be like, are you, have you always been? And they would, had a lot of um, pushback from teachers because my boyhood was so obvious, I guess, to others. I got very afraid of using the bathrooms. I, I grew very stressed about having to pee. I would avoid restrooms in public especially because that was where grown women were and grown women were meaner than my, my classmates. My classmates were also not particularly nice, but um, they would yell at my mom even. And then my mom would have a, a fight with, with a woman in the bathroom and it was always like such a such a ordeal. Locker rooms were, were a big barrier as well. And at this time I was starting to get very serious about swimming and I just was sick of it. I was, I just need to find a way that I don't get this feeling in bathrooms, that I don't feel like I have to sneak into the women's bathroom, that I don't feel, you know, scared of having to pee, that I can just live my life without everybody having an opinion about my gender. And so I, I thought, you know, if I if I change, if I if I become this girl that, you know, everybody wants me to be and says that I am, maybe it will be better. And so I, I did. I, I, I stopped getting my hair cut short. I, um, the next time we went shopping for clothes, we got girl, girls' clothes, like I bought whatever skinny jeans and like a tighter chemistry top, whatever I thought I was supposed to wear. My mom was very surprised because I had never selected girls' clothing before. And I didn't explain to her why either. I didn't say I'm being bullied in the bathrooms. She has since told me many times, I wish that I would have known, I would have done something about it. But I didn't know how to say it. How could you explain that the one thing that's supposed to be a constant about your identity, your gender, wasn't correct for me, right? I didn't know how to say that. All of this is to say there was this buildup of me deciding to conform to sort of stand Standards, general standards of girlhood or womanhood in my presentation of myself. Somewhere where I started ninth grade, because I'd switched my clothing despite the fact that my hair was still short, I began to be gendered more consistently as female, as a girl. And so I stopped getting thrown out of the bathrooms. I stopped getting as many weird looks. Uh, I started being able to go to the women's locker room without having to take off all of my, like I would use, I usually would take off my shirt because I had a swimsuit underneath. And that was like my ticket into the women's locker room because people saw the women's suit and wouldn't question me. So in high school, I, I sort of walked into this womanhood and a lot of it was 
trying to erase actually a lot of my middle school years. I was embarrassed of the old photos. I wouldn't want people to see them. I wanted people to see me as this girl. And I think I thought that doing that would make me feel better. It would make me feel like I belonged. It would make me feel like other people valued me. It would make me feel like I didn't have to constantly be hiding pieces of myself. But the more I did that, the girlier I presented myself, the more I felt like I was hiding. And I didn't know why, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't have the words or the understanding of trans identity to understand why I felt like going closer to what everybody said was me was actually feeling like I was taking a really sharp turn away from me. At the same time, I was really invested in school. I was taking a ton of AP classes. I was getting a 4.0 GPA. We were doing really well in, in swimming. At the time, we'd I'd switched to a new team that was you know a national nationally ranked team. We were national champions three years in a row in high school. And this is the girls' team. This is yeah. the girls' team. When I went to the new team, this was again the nationally ranked team. There's a lot of people there who, for lack of a better way to put it, were cool. Right? Those the kids that I was at the pool with were suddenly like the cool kids as opposed to the outcasts and like the othered kids. And so that only further sort of reinforced this desire to be like them. So I'd listen, what kind of shampoo do the other girls use? What kind of clothing are they wearing? Like, where do they buy their shorts? You know, there's a whole thing of like, how can I be like them so they don't discover that I actually come from this history of gender nonconformity and really boyhood. I had recently realized that I liked women, I liked girls, so I thought I was gay at the time. I thought, okay, that's why I'm so off, right? That That's the thing. But I really didn't want anybody at swimming to figure out, and I was lucky, lucky's not the right word, but I had a very separate life. Swimming was one thing and school was another. So I was able to keep the lives separate. So at school I came out as, as a lesbian, and everybody knew that I was a lesbian at school. Most people were like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I didn't care. I was actually in a very progressive bubble in that sense. But at swimming, everybody was very homophobic. There's a lot of racist remarks. There's a lot of calling people the F word, a lot of not great environment there. So I refused to tell anybody. And so I, I was leading this sort of very double life. I would literally wear different clothing. I would change from my like gay clothes at school in the car to my like athletic outfit to go to, to practice. I would try to talk about boys, you know, the way that other, other girls did. Um, and that locker room was so hard for me. And I think especially growing into my queerness, I felt even more like I didn't belong there because they t spoke so negatively about, about gay women. I think I was treated with respect because I was fast, right? I could keep up with the fast girls. In fact, I trained often with the boys. And so I was respected athletically. And I think that really had been a, a theme, honestly, in my life of leaning into the things that other people could clearly respect. My athletic prowess, my academic performance, um, my ability to be articulate in talking about myself, all these things have been longstanding skills of mine. So even though people were mean to me in school and would bully me for being academically sufficient, they also would ask me for help. And they also would respect me in, in an academic sense. And so I think I learned that the ways that I could belong were about how I performed. And so in swimming in high school, I leaned very deeply into performing well and swimming being my whole identity in, in many ways. And then the thing that sort of broke everything for me was, was in junior year, August 24th, 2012, I broke my back. And this was right before I began my, my junior year. Junior is the most important year for swimming recruiting at the time, because that's when all the college coaches begin to recruit their athletes. And I broke my back, so I couldn't even compete. I couldn't swim. I couldn't pick up a book. I couldn't pick up anything more than five pounds. That summer, I came out as gay. And then I broke my back at the end of that summer. And I feel like everything just sort of 
exploded for me then. Um, I wasn't engaging with people socially. I wasn't acting with swimming. And that was a huge way I had coped at the time. My identity surrounding swimming felt like it was gone. And my mental health just tanked. I stopped eating. I stopped, I think, feeling a lot of good things. I, I was very depressed in many ways. I began struggling with an eating disorder, um, with some self-harm tendencies. I really began to struggle during that time because I just didn't know what to do with myself without swimming. Do you want me to take my shirt? Yeah. Eating disorder, just before you get, you keep moving forward, what did that look like? I actually don't really ever like to discuss the details of what I experienced with my eating disorder just because I feel like it's, they're just a lot of risk factors and sharing. Actually, I would do a lot of work in the eating disorder space, so I'm not going to tell any specifics about behaviors I engaged in. But one of the things that I did as soon as I was allowed to swim again, it was like I would get really into swimming and stay really focused on swimming. And I'd do that for several months and then something would break and I would go back to having a lot of behaviors that I was using with eating disorders. And then I'd come back to swimming and I'd hold everything together for another three months and then I'd fall back into behaviors. And I just did the cycle. And it was the darkest time in my life by far. I was in a lot of pain. I think it wasn't just because of gender, you know, it was a lot of different things. My, I had a lot of, I think, pain from my childhood, lots of different things that were unhealed, undiscussed. I had so much pressure, I think, in my life to be a high performer. And I think I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have the resources and breaking my back gave me space that encouraged me to think about it. And that's where all the mental health mm -hmm. stuff sort of came flowing in. But I, I cycled sort of like in and out of using behaviors, but always just holding on the best that I could uh, and using swimming as best I could as well. I, I performed very well that the, the, the following year. I swam faster than I ever swam before when I came back from breaking my back. I was recruited by Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Columbia, and Princeton among a couple of other colleges. So I, I succeeded, um, got my Harvard acceptance letter in September of my senior year, and then everything fell apart again because I had done the thing I was looking to do and, and I just, I couldn't hold on anymore. And so much of my senior spring was sort of in and out of, again, the hospital, in and out of holding myself together, in and out of a lot of suicidality. And my therapist and my parents, everybody, I think was just like, well, I don't know what to do. Like, we don't know what's going on because I would be fine and then I wasn't, and I would be fine and then I wasn't. And I think it was a really volatile experience. And after well, there's like a, a championship season in February. And so after I performed well at that, my coach said, no more, like you need to go do something else. I don't think your head's in the game for the pool. You're already ready to swim for Harvard next year. Just do something else for the rest of the season. Don't go to nationals. Don't swim over the summer. I want you to take a break. And I did, I tried, but I, I just, I think what it, what it gave me permission to do was sink deeper into mental health depression and, you know, issues with my eating disorder and, and other mental health problems that I was having. So basically I wasn't getting better. April, I think, is when everything sort of fell apart for me because I, I punched a wall. My hand was really messed up. And in that moment, my mom was like, we have to change something. Like, you're not getting better. You're only getting worse. We actually switched me to a new therapist. The new therapist was like, I can't help you. Like, you are using way too many behaviors. You are clearly at risk to yourself. You need to go to a residential treatment center, rehab, right? And 
I remember that day so clearly. I remember that office so clearly. I had spent like, you know, two hours pouring out my, my heart and all my issues to her. And that was, her answer was very quick. It was, she wasn't like, let's go through these like, not a question. She was just like, you have to go to treatment. And so I think there was this like, as soon as she said it, there was a knowing that I, I did need to take this gap year. So it didn't take a long time for me to make that decision. They wanted actually to send me before I graduated. And I basically, I made a deal with them. I was like, I will be safe. I promise I'll be safe. I'll hold on however best they can for one month, let me graduate from high school and then and then I'll go. Um, and graduation was on June 8th. On June 9th, I woke up at seven in the morning and flew to treatment. You could take off your watch. Okay. How did you feel at that moment? I think there was actually June a lot 9th. of relief uh, when, I, when I decided to do that. I remember the intake call with the treatment center and feeling like maybe I was really gonna figure out a way to get better. You know, I, I had been at war with the eating disorder specifically, that's my, my biggest problem since it began. I had started engaging in, in eating disordered behaviors and I was like, this isn't it, this is wrong. I don't wanna do this, this is hurting me, but I didn't know how else to cope. And, and that's where sort of the addictive nature of self-harm behaviors comes in. And I remember feeling always trying to stop the eating disorder, but that's why it's a mental health issue. You can't just switch it off, you know? And I had tried so many times. I would count all the days that I hadn't used behaviors. I'd count the times that I was able to abstain and it always fell off, right? And so there was there was relief, honestly, in it because I thought, okay, I'm gonna go to a place where there are rules. Good, I like rules. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe I'm gonna get better. Like maybe I'm finally gonna get rid of this thing that has tortured me for the past several years. There's a lot of terror. I didn't know how I was going to tell people this is what I was going to do. I had a whole team waiting for me that fall. I was very excited about going to Harvard and, and you know, going to the women's team. And, and I'd made all these friends. The recruiting process is almost two years long. So I had already known these girls mm -hmm. for a while. And I was embarrassed to tell mm -hmm. them that I wasn't going to show up that fall. And for what? For mental health, right? It's mm -hmm. not something we, especially not whatever now, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. something that we talked about frequently. So I was scared. And then I was sad to leave my family, my friends, everybody else was going to go off to college and, and have their last summer before they went to college. And I was going to go check into a rehab center. So I was also very sad. I think I grieved a lot of that ending that I didn't get. I went to graduation and literally the next morning I woke up and left. Um, and I think that was really painful for me. And so what like started to come out of yeah, the healing, the healing process, process, yeah. My therapist saved my life. There's no other way to say it. I think she did an excellent job of encouraging me to investigate parts of myself that I hadn't before. I never named I'm bullied, right? I had never said I don't feel like I belong with other people. I had never said my gender feels confusing to me. And it's not that I came into the therapy office and said those things either, but mm -hmm. she listened between the lines and pulled them from me, mm -hmm. right? There's a, a piece of artwork that I did when I was in, I think it's fifth grade. We were told to, to make two faces, one, um, out of clay, one of us now and one of us in the future. I'm an overachiever, so I made four faces. <laughs> you can very clearly see the first one is me. I've got like a Justin Bieber haircut that I had at the time. I even put my braces into it. It's got four different color braces. I had rainbow braces at the time. I don't know how people didn't know that I was queer, but anywho. Um, and the oldest one is an old man um, who has glasses and looks exactly like my grandfather. And the two middle ones, one looks a lot like me actually now, and one of them looks like a sort of middle-aged man. But this is this is something mm. I created when I was a kid, mm. when I was fifth grade. I brought it home with no explanation. My dad helped me install it on these wooden panels, so it, there's the four faces on each panel. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote Love Life on it. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I somehow explained that in some support group when I was in treatment. And my therapist was like, let's talk about this painting. I think Josephine, my therapist, um, did a really good job of pressing into those sort of in-betweens where she heard me talk about joy in my life. So I think a lot of the healing was that. Um, a lot of the healing was was unrelated to gender. You know, I, I think everybody has complex relationships with their parents and their mm-hmm. siblings. And there were a lot of pieces of how I was raised that were hurtful and painful as well. I had to heal um, many of the expectations that were placed on me. Again, I think aligned with being this, this sort of high-performing child that mm-hmm. had a lot of pressure to be a certain type of of kid, mm-hmm. right? And to be perfect in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I internalized a lot of that as a way to be worthy, as a way to, to belong, as a way to feel like I have worth in myself. All the things that I actually have worked to distance my identity and my worth from are exactly what the world defines me as. I'm smart, I'm articulate, I am good at school, I am uh, capable of doing the education work that I do. All of those things are praise that I've gotten. And it's not that I reject them, but they aren't my identity, but they but they are often shown as my identity, especially as now as a public figure. But the problem or the, the tension for me is how can that be my worth to somebody else and not be my only worth to myself? Is it relevant actually that I have worth or not? Or is it just relevant that my emotions are painful in that moment? I think the concept of constructing worth is externalizing the fact that I have pain and I don't want to have pain. And that's it, right? Like if I'm in, if somebody's transphobic towards me, I could say, oh, I'm, I don't deserve that because I have worth. Or I could say, ouch. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to hurt. And that should be enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where I come to it is I don't, mm-hmm. when we construct worthiness as something that's valuable and then something that can be attacked, we are saying that emotions aren't enough mm-hmm. to be something that should be listened to. Can we take off shoes or shoes? Yeah, shoes. And then where did sort of transitioning mm. come into the mix of this m- moment that you're in? The word transgender took a long time to show up in therapy, I think, because my therapist wasn't trying to say, like, you're transgender. She was trying to say, maybe gender is important. And so I think we we sort of stumbled into it as, as she led me to a place where I felt more comfortable examining my gender. And then when we got to that place where the word transgender had finally come up in therapy, she said, Skylar, I, I'm not actually an expert in these identities. Let's have you let's have you meet some people who are trans, right? Just just get some more education, some more context. Let's have you sort of get your feet wet in this community so that you have more sort of a grounding. So I actually was able to go to play there's a place called the Yes Institute in Miami, which is where I was going to treatment. And I went to like this this workshop called the Gender Continuum. And it was all about how gender is more complicated than what we're originally taught, male and female, right? There's more than that, how even biological sex is, is more complicated. And I met the first trans person that I had ever really knowingly met. And there was something about the way he walked in and the cargo shorts that he was wearing that I had worn my whole childhood. And just the way he held himself that I was like, oh my God, that's me. And there was something in me that broke and I spent the rest of the eight hour workshop in tears. I was like sobbing pretty much nonstop for most of that day. Um, Some of that was relief, but most of it was pain. Because despite the fact that being trans and and sort of the word trans, the identity trans, helped encapsulate a lot of my history, a lot of the confusion that I experienced, a lot of the pain in locker rooms or bathrooms or what have you, it was so terrifying to say, this is me. Because what was I gonna do about my world? What was I gonna do about my friends? What was I gonna do about my family? What was I gonna do about swimming? 
right? That was a huge uh, part of my life. And really all I was doing in treatment in my head was fixing myself so I could go back to, to school and to swimming. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh my God, what if, well, I found this, this like bomb, now what? What do I do mm-hmm. with it? It's going to go it's off scary. and everybody's going to know. Right. After I left treatment and began sort of falling deeper into myself and trying to find more of what made me feel comfortable in the world, claiming the identity trans uh, more publicly. When I say publicly, I mean with a couple of my friends. I began finding more confidence enough to start to, to claim the identity as my own. In that fall, I began shifting pieces of how I dressed and how I looked. I cut my hair short. I came out to my parents and those were relatively low reactions from folks. I think that my mom and dad were more just like, what's next? Because for a lot of people, mental health treatment can be very revolutionary and very unpredictable, right? Because you're doing eight hours of therapy every day, every, you know, for a long time. I think that's how my parents felt. It was like I was kind of throwing a bunch of stuff on the wall and most hadn't stuck. So when I threw trans on the wall, they were like, okay, (laughs) sure. And I think there wasn't a confidence that it was going to stick. But when it did, then I think more of the more difficult conversations came out of, are you you actually want to change your body? What do you want to do? What are you going to do about swimming, right? I think they became much more nervous about how I was going to, you know, carry forwards with that identity and what did that identity mean about what I wanted to do with my body. My parents and I had several difficult conversations about surgery. I wanted to get top surgery. I was very clear about that. To me, it wasn't there wasn't a question. It was, oh my God, this is something I can do. Absolutely, I want it. So that was a very difficult process because my parents were so resistant to the idea. My parents, I think, were doing their due diligence. My doctors also said no. My doctors also were like, no, you just got out of treatment. No, this is a phase. No, what if you regret it? But they wanted me to have lived as a man for a year before I, I got surgery. And I had felt that I'd been living my whole life in this mm-hmm. in-between. What do you mean I have to wait another mm-hmm. year, right? Even my therapists, all of them, because I had multiple at that point, none of them would sign the letter. None of the doctors would sign the letter. And, and my, my dad said, if you can't find somebody to sign the letter for you, you literally can't get surgery because it's not allowed. But also, I'm not going to support you doing this because the doctors are clearly saying no. So there's a lot of medical transphobia that I experienced that was very difficult. A lot of people thought that my transition was I think a reaction to the mental health journey that I'd been on as opposed to had had been there the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the crux of it was they wanted to protect me from potential regret, right? And potential decisions that they didn't Mm -hmm. think would yield the results I was looking for. And I wanted them to trust me. Mm-hmm. And that was a fight we had in many different tenors, yelling, screaming, calm, whatever. And I think it came down to you have to love me and just trust me. You can't control me. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, 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 a mistake a lot of parents make is they want their kid to be their version of safe as opposed mm-hmm. to listening to what the kid is saying, this is what I need. And I think the, the, the barrier was also understanding. They felt that they didn't understand me. They were like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why is this necessary? Why do you have to do this now? And I was like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I have to do this now. And I finally, there's a a screaming fight me and my dad had where I said, I'm not asking you to get it. I actually don't care if you understand or not. You need to just trust me because I get it. And that's something I talk to parents a lot about is is stopping Mm -hmm. trying to focus on understanding. We're not going to understand everybody, but we can love people, right? We can respect people. We can trust people. Um, So that's sort of how my transition began. My parents are my biggest fans now, so the arc is very positive. But it was very difficult at that time, I think, because they were so worried, right? And love makes us worry quite a bit. My parents love me very deeply, and that was never a doubt in my mind. But the way they sort of communicated the love was in a... 
a, a way that didn't help me at the time until they let go of needing to understand every detail. Mm. I got surgery in March of, of 2015 after pretty much spending months and months just focusing on, on procuring somebody who would allow me to. My dad came with me actually to surgery. I went to the surgery center that had been in practice for several years serving trans people specifically going through surgery. And he was the first dad that had ever come with his mm. trans son to that center. You can take your socks off, yeah. Socks off? Yeah. Mm. Trust is a big thing as a parent. Uh-huh. I think trust is one of the biggest things with like any relationship, mm -hmm. you parental. It's one of the most difficult things to build. But I also, I'm a big believer that sometimes you have to choose to trust people and you have to mitigate the insecurity that you have on your own. Our own abandonment shit, our own You're, people, it's triggering whatever. triggering something like, that's deeper. That, that it's a bigger issue for, for me than it, than it really is calibrated for the moment. Me and my wife talk about that a lot, I about like that. sort of calibrate, I like uncalibrated issue. responses. But we like to say uncalibrated as opposed mm. to like overreactive because it's not that you're overreacting, you're just reacting to something that isn't in this moment. If we call it overreaction, then we're telling a five-year-old child you're overreacting and when does that ever help a five-year-old no, child? Never. It shames them. But if you say, oh, this is uncalibrated, then it's like, oh, this is not like this is not literally calibrated to this moment, right. but it's something, it's calibrated somewhere. It's still real. <laughs> That's so right. good. I need to like tattoo yeah. that. Okay, so post-surgery, how are you feeling? Yeah. When I woke up from surgery, I looked down at my chest and I immediately started crying um, because even under all the bandages, it was flatter than it had been for years since before puberty. And I was so happy in that moment because that had been what I was looking for. Anybody who's grown breasts might remember the feeling of them growing. They kind of itch. They feel a little painful sometimes, the little buds that grow. And I remember what happened, I would press on them to make those like, if I can stop them from coming. So, so the desire for them to have been gone was a very old desire. And so getting top surgery, I think, was really being in that moment of being in my body and, and having something in my body or experiencing of my body that I had been dreaming of for a long time. Mm -hmm. And my dad was there when I woke up from surgery too. And he's told me since that that was a really big moment for him because he saw me break in, in, in happiness. And I think there was a glimpse of a happiness he hadn't seen for a long time um, that was really powerful to him. And I, he's told me that that was the moment he was like, I'm so glad I trusted my kid. Mm. Wow, that's, all, that's amazing. And then what was the journey from then to starting college? like? A lot happened between March <laughs> and, and August. At that time, I was still planning on swimming for the women's team. I was going to get top surgery and then stay in a women's swimsuit and stay on the women's team. There's no like issue with that. You, they don't legislate like breast size to be able to compete on the women's team. So I was going to have this surgery to make me feel more comfortable and still stay in the women's category. But when I returned from that surgery, the coaches who had clearly been discussing, you know, all of these different happening situation with me, they said, we, what if you swim on the men's team? What, what would that look like if you swim on the men's team? Do you want to swim on the men's team? And the men's coach had actually been very, very supportive of this idea. He had actually brought the idea to the women's coach. And he was just like, well, Skylar, you know, he identifies as a guy and wants to swim and is already accepted into Harvard. Why wouldn't he just swim for me, the men's swim team, right? And I actually said no. 
when I first signed me down, I said, no, I said, I want to stay on the women's team. And I think a lot of people, especially now they see me and they, they're like, what, why would you have said no? That seems like what you've been working for. But you have to remember that I had been working my whole life to be very good at women's swimming and swimming in the men's team would be instantly getting rid of all of the success that I had been working for in the women's category. It would mean starting over again in the men's category. It would mean being on a men's team with a bunch of college aged men that I had been bullied by in my entire career on the women's team, right? And walking in into a, a men's locker room, having been, you know, objectified by all the male swimmers on my swim team in, in high school, it was terrifying. And so I said, no, I was like, I'm not ready for that. I don't know how to be a man on a man's team. I'm just barely figuring out my own manhood, my own masculinity on my own. You want me to be on a men's college team? Right. I think it was so scary. And then there was a, a very pivotal moment when I talked to the women's coach. She was the one guiding me through the process. She pulled me into her office after Visitas, after that weekend, and she said, Skylar, you know what you want. And the reality is you're standing at the edge of a cliff and you just need to do this. You need to jump, you need to take that risk. We're here, you're gonna, you're gonna be fine. I think you know what you want. We're just waiting for you to sort of catch up with yourself. I did end up do that, doing that, taking that leap of faith, beginning on the men's team. And so I was going to start at, at, on Harvard swimming, regardless of which gender team, having not swum for, you know, almost two years at that point, because I'd also taken my senior spring off. So I was so afraid of my athletic cap capabilities and coming back to practice was terrifying, <laughs> um, especially in a men's suit. Can you take off your shirt? There was an early moment on the team where somebody said something that like basically told a misogynistic joke. And I was really disappointed because the person who said it was somebody that I had started to like. I thought he was a cool person, whatever. He, he said this joke. And I was so distressed that I just like left. I walked away. And I didn't know what to do because I felt that if I didn't laugh, that it was a, 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 you know, a ticket out the door. It was me not belonging, right? But if I stayed, I was violating everything I felt that I valued about myself. And I just, I felt so conflicted, so I, I walked away. And actually this guy came after me and, and, and was like, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I told him why I was upset. I sort of was like, you know what? What do I have to lose here? He said, what's the difference between jelly and jam? I can't jelly my dick down your throat. And I was like, what the heck are you doing, right? Why would you say that? Especially, you know, with people who are looking to you as, as you know, you're the, you know, older, this mm -hmm. is a, a person who was an upperclassman. Mm -hmm. So I tried to explain um, to him that why I was upset. He was, oh, you don't understand the joke. And he wanted to explain it to me. I said, no, no, I, it's not that I don't understand the joke. I get it. But this perpetuates a culture of aggression towards mostly women and not consent towards mostly women. And I was trying to explain to him and it wasn't getting through and eventually I was like, well, what if somebody said this joke specifically about your mother? Would you be okay with that? He's like, no, absolutely not. I'd probably beat the guy up. Okay, well, what if it was your sister? Same response. Oh, mm -hmm. why does a woman have to be your mother or your sister to, to earn that kind of respect? And he really sat, to his credit, really sat and thought about it. He was like, gosh, you're right. So there was a really important moment for me that happened there, which was A, I trusted him. And he actually trusted me to have this conversation in that moment. And it was separate, so we weren't in a group of people. That's a big, a big important part, because I don't think the same conversation would have happened if we were surrounded by the guys, right? But I also, I think, learned a lot in that moment, again, about toxic masculinity and about these behaviors that are 
all about trying to belong because it was about, oh, it's funny. Oh, people laughed. Oh, you don't get it. You're not in this circle, right? I want you to be in this circle because I'm in this circle. And it wasn't, I want to hurt people. But the problem is that that's not, that's not the future of that joke. It is hurting people. But my takeaway is that if I can call somebody in, if I can not yell at them in a space, if I can get a moment where I can actually talk to somebody and connect about an experience, there's actually real change to be had. And I think that that's what we lack and what I think I have seen for good reason, women lack in moments to talk mm -hmm. to men because it's just in that moment, all patriarchal violence they've ever experienced is coming up in this one moment. And it's that word, it's uncalibrated to that one moment, mm -hmm. but it's very valid. Now I have this space because I'm not the victim of it in the same way. And so I, I feel that I have a responsibility to have these conversations in a way that holds that other man through whatever pain he's experiencing when he's called in. Because what he's really hearing when I say, don't say that, is your ticket to belonging is invalid, right? When I say don't use those toxic behaviors you've been taught to, to use as belonging, you, I'm ripping up your ticket and now what are you supposed to do? So I think there's, there's a, a, a real pain that exists for, for people in that moment that I've watched sort of like crumble. And then the question is, okay, now what? What do I do? And I think that's a big question that the world is actually grappling with, which is what what do we do with men who are told they cannot use the behaviors they've used for centuries, for millennia? They have to feel the pain. To belong. They have to feel the pain, but they also have to find a way that belonging isn't predicated upon control. And that's a, that's another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what what about like on the flip side? So you're speaking of like sort of examples where you experienced the toxicity. Were there things that you experienced that felt really awesome about being part of a group of men? Yeah. I mean, I always say that my experience on the men's team was life-saving, life-giving, grief-stricken, and, and, you know, the best and worst thing in many ways, right? I think there were parts that were the worst parts of my life in moments when I felt like I didn't belong. There were also some of the best moments in my life on that team. Um, that's college for most people, right? Um, but I think there was so much gender euphoria in being able to wear my, my Speedo, my, my small, you know, men's swimsuit for the first time um, in a meet, I remember feeling so much joy and sort of connectedness with my body and the water. More of my body is exposed to the water with a small swimsuit than from the women's, women's swimsuit. There were so many moments with my teammates where I, I felt just like myself and I was just able to um, just be me and just be. I think there were so many important healing moments for me of being included with the guys and having fun with them at maybe a party or, or a, a swim meet or when we went on training trip where I just got to let go of all of this baggage I'd been carrying of I have to be this way in this moment with this gender and this you know, whatever expectations um, where I did find ways to let go of those things. And I think those were really important moments in my life because I hadn't felt that kind of weightlessness. So there were lots of difficult moments on the team, but there were also so many beautiful moments. And I think I said this earlier, but many of the guys on the team are still really good friends of mine. And, and I, w I wouldn't change the experience ever. I think I, you know, so many of us lean deeper into being able to be emotionally intimate with each other. And th that's the solution, in my opinion. And men have to be able to be emotionally intimate with each other. And they're not globally, societally allowed to do that. Um, and I think that's a, that's actually a whole humanity problem. It's not just a men's problem because every time I post about, you know, boys being allowed to cry or boys being allowed to hug each other or boys being able to say, I love you, I have tons of women in the comments being like, 
Like, I don't want my man to be soft like that. But patriarchy also turns non-men into people who perpetuate the patriarchy too. But they're not doing it with the power of the patriarchy. And that's an important distinction, right? They're not being oppressive because they can't because they don't have power. But they can perpetuate mm -hmm. these these stigmas and these mm -hmm. practices of harming, especially young people. Okay. We all have a responsibility to invite boys specifically to have a full range of emotions. Mm -hmm. Because when we don't, we are we are causing young boys to curb their own humanity. And when your humanity is curbed, you curb the humanity of other people. What does that look like? Violence. Can you take off your belt? When do you feel the most vulnerable? I feel very vulnerable in moments when somebody is hurt by something that I've done and I didn't mean for it. And I think mm -hmm. that is something that I have really had to contend with, mm -hmm. especially, for example, in my relationship with my wife, because sometimes I do things that hurt her and I don't mean to. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work if I say I didn't mean to. <laughs> I have to take responsibility for an impact that I've had, even if my intent wasn't the impact. And that's a very that's been a very difficult shift for me to really embody. Logically, got it. Intent doesn't bar impact, right? And I can say that to the end of time. But in the moment when I've done something and the impact wasn't what I intended, I feel very vulnerable and very sad because I would I never want to hurt anybody, and I don't want to be perceived as somebody who would. And that goes back to the perfectionism and the pressure I felt to be the best version I could possibly be of myself. We'll be right back. Welcome back to What's Underneath Masculinity. When do you feel the most beautiful, handsome, whatever are feels they the, right to you? And also, are they the same or different? The times that I've, I think the most frequently handsome I feel is usually like when I've done a workout of some kind. And I think it's not a coincidence. I think there's a, a couple of things that are happening in those moments. I feel connected to my body. Usually I feel some sort of pride in, in sort of the connection with my body and moving with my body. And then I think also sweat makes for a nice thing in my hair. <laughs> um, and I feel like <laughs> makes me, I don't know, I like the way my hair looks when I've, when I've sweat and it honestly, it feels strange to say that, but they do have salt spray for your hair. So I'm told that's like a real thing. Exercise has been such a such a complicated experience for me in my life and it's always been a safe haven mm -hmm. to some degree it's always been a place where mm -hmm. I can turn off the world especially in a pool I'm going underwater I can't listen to anybody swimming is one of those I think unique sports actually when you're swimming you don't see a lot of your body right if you're doing it correctly you're laying like this mm -hmm. you can see your legs you're just staring at the ground it's like this out-of-body experience where mm -hmm. you're just the act of swimming you're not really a body anymore and so mm -hmm. I, I think that allowed me actually to disconnect from myself at the same time, though, I was connecting in the, in the sort of most primal and most mm -hmm. important way. And I think the combination of those two things in my childhood was also a way that I was ignoring my gender. I was ignoring the disconnection with mm -hmm. my appearance. The feeling like my body wasn't mm -hmm. mine or wasn't aligned with me was remedied by a connectedness to it through swimming. And so I think now being able to, to exit something athletic, whether it be swimming or running or whatever I do, and then feel connected to the image that I see in the mirror is such a privilege. I think the, the combination of that allows the connectedness I feel in the movement to translate into a connectedness in my whole body and my whole person. Okay, can you take off your necklace? What is your favorite and least favorite part of your body? For a long time, my hair was actually a big defining part of my body. I think the reason was because it was the one part of my body that I had the most control over. Mm -hmm. As a kid, 
I was allowed to dictate what my hair looked like and I could brush it the way I wanted to or not. I could, you know, ask for a haircut or not. And I was allowed to control actually people's vision of my gender through my haircut. It was very clear if my hair looked like this, then people would gender me as a girl. If they looked like that, people would gender me as, as a boy. I have loved my my chest scar. My chest scar is a really, really important part of, of my body. It's my, my story, my history written in bold across my chest. I've had so many people give me unsolicited advice about the scars over the years. You should put vitamin E oil on it to make it go down. You can get surgery and lasers can make it look less red. You can do this and that and the other. Never have I ever solicited this because I've, I've never wanted to change. I don't want it to fade. And I'm very grateful for all of the power it reminds me that I have and that my body has. And ha have you ever, like, struggled with, like, genitalia stuff in relation to your idea of masculinity and, like, where are you at with that? So what we talk about is, is dysphoria, right? So when I had breasts, I felt dysphoric or gender dysphoria about my breasts. And um, I didn't have very strong bottom dysphoria. That's what we call it, the word genital dysphoria. There's definitely an, an external pressure of what my body looks like. And, and do, I, do I wish, for example, like my Speedo fits me flat, right? Whereas for men who have a penis, it would not be as, as flat, right? I worked very hard to feel comfortable in my Speedo without it having anything in it other than me. There are some people who would wear a Speedo and would be called packing, right? Would put a, a, um, a prosthetic in there to make it feel more comfortable for them. I think that's completely valid. But for me, that would be another message to my body that it wasn't enough. And I want to consistently always send the message to my body that it's enough as it is. Which sounds conflicting because it, I, I did take, take steps to change my body, but I feel that I've done enough of those changes. And at this point, I just want to be with it. And, and I want to have all of the things that it has as it is. And I want to grieve all the things that it's not and, and let all those things exist together. Pants? So why in your body, in your skin, in your journey, why is it a good place to be? I don't know if being in my body is good or if it just is. What's good is feeling connected to being in my body. I want to live my life in a way that cultivates the most alignment that I possibly can, whether that be alignment with my peers, alignment with my values, alignment between my actions and my values, and alignment with myself and alignment with my body. All of those things I want to feel as aligned as possible. And I don't think I'm ever going to feel like 100% alignment, but my goal and I think part of honestly my mission in my life is sort of like a maybe a personal purpose of life is to continue acting in a way that I'm getting closer to being aligned. One of my friends mm -hmm. said that they think the purpose of life is to get as close as you can to your truth and you'll never get it, mm -hmm. but you'll get closer and closer mm -hmm. to it. And I think that sort of endeavor is what I think about when you ask me about being connected mm -hmm. or, or being in my body. Why is it good? I don't know if, if it is good or not. It just is what I, I think what's, what's good is finding that alignment. And last question, what does it mean to you to be man enough? I like to ask myself that question consistently. I don't think I have an answer to what does it mean to be man enough. I think the only sort of soundbite answer that I could give is that being man enough means I feel confident and I feel enough. 
But I also don't like the concept of enoughness. I think when we when we try to measure ourselves by this is, this is enough, then we are already measuring our humanity, and I don't think that can be measured. So being being man enough is something that's unattainable. I think it's something that we create in society to say some people belong in the man category and some people don't. Some people are worthy and some people are not. And I think that way of organizing humans is inhumane. I think it's unkind. I think it breeds toxic masculinity. I think it makes young boys feel like they don't belong. And then those young boys grow up to be men who will make other people feel that they don't belong. And this cycle never ends. I don't think there is anything that is man enough. Um, and I don't know if I ever want to be man enough. It's one of the things that I actually realized early in my transition where people would tell me I wasn't man enough for whatever reason, whether it be my transness, my behavior, my showing up in a moment in a certain way that you're not man enough. And I've said, yeah, I'm not. To you, I'm not man enough. That is a truth, right? To many people in the world, to unfortunately right now a majority of Americans, I'm not man enough because they don't believe that trans people can identify as something other than what they were assigned at birth. To other people, I am decidedly not man enough. And that has to be okay with me. That has to be the case. And so I think that man enough is a metric that I'm not interested in ever ascertaining. That is an amazing answer. Beautiful. How do you feel now, like that you're undressed and- I feel like I'm ready to go swimming. <laughs> Part of me feels comfortable. Part of me feels seen, both like physically and metaphorically. You've probably heard like Brene Brown's term, the, the vulnerability hangover. So I think I feel a little bit of like, oh my God, did I share too much? Did I make sense? Is there, you know, I think I always, because I've, I've had so many different interactions with different people, I always worry about telling somebody else's story for them um, and, you know, maybe hurting somebody by telling my, my truth that might not be an accurate representation for somebody else's view of themselves, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Everything I do has risk, and I think the word risk is right now, especially something that's weaponized against trans people. What if you regret your transition? What if you're wrong? What if, you know, this is not the right thing for, for trans youth or, or what have you? Risk is often weaponized against us, and I think that the reality is that everything always has risk, and how do I live my life in a way that allows me to do what I want to do continue to cultivate alignment with myself and accept the risk that I'm gonna make mistakes along the way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a hard thing for me to do because I'm very meticulous, I'm a very cautious person in many ways, and I've not wanted to assume risk where the risk was like, you know, any bigger than 2%, I don't want it. And I think my life now has demanded that I assume risk that's larger than that, sometimes mm -hmm. up to, you know, 50% risk, right? And I've had to say, I'm gonna be okay anyways, right? I'm gonna be able to figure out what happens even if the risk happens, right? If the bad thing happens, the thing I don't wanna have happen, how can I actually build a confidence in myself that I'm gonna be able to figure that out too? I think this goes back a little bit to the calibration conversation, which is I think that the calibration now is me knowing that and being able to understand that if I have a reaction in a moment and a vulnerability in a moment, I have to actually go through it. What's the worst that can happen, Skylar? And can you be okay anyways? The answer is usually yes. And I think that's what stops a lot of, especially men, from walking into this because there are so many other rules, I, and even now that I feel as, as a man, that withhold that vulnerability, that ability to tell one's truth to somebody else. And those are the relationships I'm so passionate about cultivating is with other men. Can we tell our truths to each other? And can we hold each other in those truths that allows the tears, that allows the connection, that allows the pain? Because if we can't, that is the current destruction of society and has been for, for centuries. 
That Thank was you so, just so, absolutely so, so, so much. magnificently beautiful. It was such a gift to us. Like everyone, I know everyone's melting and glowing and elevated and just we're so, so, so thankful. And it's going to be incredibly exciting to like send it out into the world. And that was What's Underneath with Skylar Bylar. We're very grateful to him for sharing himself so authentically with us. And we hope you found healing on your own journey towards self-acceptance through his story. You can watch the video version of this interview and see our guests remove their layers in all their singular glory by heading to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash style like you. And that's with the letter U, not the Y-O-U. Each week on our YouTube channel, you can also find a debrief video where Lily and I sit down with Hesu Joe, a licensed therapist from BetterHelp, to unpack the lessons and incredible takeaways from each episode. Speaking of which, we're so grateful to our incredible sponsor, BetterHelp, for supporting us in bringing this series to life. If you're looking to take your mental health journey to the next level and are thinking of starting therapy, you can enjoy 10% off of your first month of therapy at betterhelp.com slash what's underneath. Before we go, remember to follow Man Enough on all social platforms at We Are Man Enough and visit manenough.com slash podcasts for more episodes of What's Underneath Masculinity and the Man Enough podcast. And don't forget to follow at Style Like You on social media as well. We'll be back next week with another amazing guest and can't wait to see you there. 